The scripture reading this evening will be from 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavens, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. a great afternoon. We are tonight going to finish our six-part series on the idea of evil, and we started about eight weeks ago. We've had a couple uh, breaks with song services and such to bring us to this point. We started uh, about eight weeks ago talking about uh, the basic question of what is evil, what really is evil, and we've uh, anchored ourselves in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 where Isaiah sets out for us that evil is literally just the opposite of that which we would call good or that which God has ordained or God has made. And so evil is doing the very thing that is opposite of God. Um, in that text in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call good evil and evil good and sweet and bitter and light and dark. He sets those in opposite. And so we uh, acknowledge what evil is. We said where evil comes from. It comes both from humans rebelling against God, but humans also being deceived by what the Bible calls the principality and the powers of the air, spiritual darkness. Um, we see it basically revealed in Scripture as Satan, who has an influence and a desire to deceive people from obeying God. He wants to deceive as many people as possible into believing the lie that following God and listening to God and obeying God and submitting to God will not actually give you a good life. It'll cause you suffering and heartache. You'll miss out on a lot, and you'll eventually die um, a horrible, separated, un unfulfilled life. And so convincing people of that, under that power, humans then rebel against God. And so human rebellion, under the influence of Satan's lies and manipulation, is what stirs up or promotes evil. And we finally anchored ourselves in this belief, what are we supposed to do in light of living now in a world that is full of evil? And one of the really important things for us to be doing as we think about some topics like evil is this. Evil is actually a subject that regardless of your worldview, regardless of your religion, regardless of your beliefs right now, a majority of people agree that we are experiencing and living in and observing evil in the world. 
people aren't Christians, they're calling things, things evil. People aren't even religious and they're calling things wrong or evil. So your neighbors, your friends that don't share a faith like you are agreeing with you that there are things in this world right now, injustices and, and wrongs, that people would say that is evil. And what's important about that is that gives us an opportunity to start having some meaningful conversation with people about where evil came from, what evil really is. How do we have a basis for what we call things evil and not evil? And ultimately, how do we solve the evil? That's what we're going to get to tonight. How is evil really solved? And you know, um, there really isn't another worldview in the world that offers the solution for evil with the certainty that it offers as Christianity. And we'll see how that plays itself out tonight. But then we spent four weeks saying, okay, if we live in an, a world that is broken by sin and permeated with evil, um, God has given us gifts into this world to restrain evil in society so that evil just doesn't have complete and total dominance. And he started with the human where he gave us the conscience, that thing that's inside of us that tells us this is right and this is wrong, that thing inside of us that uh, allows us to feel guilty when we've done things that we ought not to do and to feel satisfaction when we're doing the things that we should do. That's, that's the personal gift that God has given every human, but we know that that gift itself can be disabled and oftentimes hardened. The second gift that God gave us to restrain evil was the family, the structure in the home where a mom and a dad could raise children to know this is right and this is wrong. But I don't have to spend much time convincing you that that gift from God is also being dismantled and eroding before our very eyes. So that's the second thing God gave us. The third thing God gave us to restrain evil in society is civil authority. In fact, governments, not just one kind, but government, when done for the sake of which God reveals in Scripture, is a gift from God. Government is intended to reward those who do right and give consequences to those who do wrong and if the government operates that way it will curb evil and, and uh, reinforce people to do that which is right and finally last week we talked about the last gift or restraint that God has given us to evil and that was his word and his word the word of God is not just um, religious instruction it's not just religious teachings um, trying to convince you to become more religious in a particular kind of religion. God's word is a, is a message from God to mankind screaming to us to repent, to change, to not follow the course that we are following. In fact, scripture revealed to us that man um, does not have it within himself to direct his own paths and calls for us to follow the paths that are laid out for us by God. And so God has given us those four gifts the human conscience, the family, civil authority, and his word to withhold and restrain evil as we live in an evil world. But what's the ultimate end of all this? The ultimate conclusion? Where are we going? What's the hope? Um, are we hoping maybe that human beings will eventually figure this thing out? That, that's sort of the cell of what people would call progressivism, which is uh, little by little humans will progressively get less and less evil until we finally reach the day where evil is no more and we can just figure it out on our own. Um, that, that's sort of the cell of what progressivism is. And as we see, though most certainly there are things in which we are improving 
uh, things in which we are growing, but at the same time, things are getting worse in some other areas. The Bible says that as long as there are humans, there will be people growing evil and worse and worse. I want to share with you a context passage to help us understand 2 Peter chapter 3 tonight. It's from 1 Corinthians 15, starting in about verse 20. Because you might wonder, okay, what is Christianity's ultimate explanation for how it will deal with evil? Um, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us insight into what God and Christ are doing right now in the period of time that we still live in a world that has evil, but we are waiting for a day in which there will be no evil. So what's happening in this period of time? And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us what Christ is doing, and then 2 Peter 3 is going to show us some more details about the day that's coming when evil will finally be dealt with and how we ought to live in light of that. So let me read this passage from 1 Corinthians 15 to you. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ was the firstfruits in his resurrection, meaning the first one who will be of many, who will raise like he raised to a body that is transformed. Uh, he is the first one who then ascended in his body to be in the presence of God. And he was the first one to be able to do that. And he says he will be the first. And at his coming, there will be many others that will do the very same, those that belong to Jesus Christ. But what is he doing between the time of his resurrection and the time of his coming? Verse 24 says this, At his coming, then comes the end, when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. The kingdom to God the Father, pardon me. After, after, destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is ex ex pardon me, expected, wait, accepted, who will put all things in subjection under him. When all things are, in subject, are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So here's simply what he's saying, the promise of what Jesus is actively doing right now. He is actively battling those that are in power and authority and um, every rule that is the evil forces of this world. He is actively bringing them in subjection so that at the coming, when he comes, he will hand the kingdom of God back to his Father. Now let's go back to first, or Second Peter and see what that day is going to be like. You see, the Christian promise of how evil will be dealt with is not a promise that it will eventually, progressively, hopefully, little by little get better. The Christian promise is that in spite of evil and suffering in this world, you and I can be refined into the image of Christ 
in hopes of and looking forward to a world in which no evil will exist. So this world in which we live now where there are restraints and evil exists is not for naught, it's not um, just a throwaway world. It is in fact a time in which God through this situation can refine, shape, and change his people into the image of Jesus. And we are preparing ourselves for a world in which evil will no longer exist. And in the time between when we become like Christ and evil no longer existing is when God through Christ will finally conquer and destroy evil. Literally destroy it. And that's what Peter's telling us in this text. So let's do three things. One, we can see first and foremost how God will deal with evil is that he will send Jesus Christ on a particular day. Number two, evil will be conquered. Number three, in light of that, it changes how you live. When you understand the Christian promise, it will change how you live. Let's start with when Christ will come. Well, our text in 2 Peter 3, if you go back to verse, verse 4, Peter's dealing with some of these scoffers that show up that are kind of mocking. Now, now this is like maybe 65, 70 years, uh, probably about 65 years uh, into the first century. So probably about 35 years into after Jesus raised from the dead and ascended to the Father. And there are already people showing up mocking uh, these Christians who are readying themselves for the new heaven and new earth. They're saying, when is he going to come? You say this Jesus is going to return and then the world will be made new and will exist in a place of full righteousness. When is it going to happen? And they mock them saying, since creation... Since creation, things have always been like they always are. He's never going to come. And in that mocking, Peter reminds them of something. Look down in verse uh, 5. For they deliberately, those that mock, overlook this fact. Now one of the things that uh, Peter does here is kind of subtle, but not so subtle, is he pokes holes in their argument saying that from creation things have always been this way there was actually a, a pretty big event that took place between creation and now that cleansed the earth of evil. Do you remember that event? God didn't use water or fire, but what did he use? I already told you, you should know this now. Right? He used water. He used water. There's some significance to water being used first and then fire. Um, in Genesis chapter 5, 6, and 7, you know, when Noah... When God says, listen, the whole earth is evil. Their thoughts are intended upon evil. God then has Noah build an ark, put the animals on. Noah and his family get on the ark. God with his finger shuts the door and come the rains. And with water, God washes the earth of evil. Just like as Peter would use earlier in his letters, when he speaks to us as Christians, that water is the first experience we have of getting evil out of our lives, separating us from the consequence and, and, uh, consequence and detriment of sin. Peter says that that's what baptism is like. It separates us, water, between evil and us. And we're in the ark that saves us, Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is for. But earlier, Peter also tells us that it's not just the beginning, the time of water that washes us from sin, but later, as we go through life, fire, the trials of fire continue to refine us. And so Peter's poking some holes in this belief that from creation, it's always been this way. It's always happened this way. No, no, no. Peter says, stop. There was a moment when God washed the earth. 
And now he is storing up for a day when it won't be water this time, but it will be fire. And fire is going to purge and dissolve and melt away everything that is not, that everything that is evil, everything that is wrong. Well, the question is when, right? So these scoffers are saying, it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. It's been like this since creation. The question is when, and that seems to be our question oftentimes is when. You know, the saints in Revelation would cry out, Oh Lord, how long until you come? And longing for him to come because they desire this new heaven and new earth. Um, We oftentimes wonder, and Jesus himself would even say that even he doesn't know when. But here's what we do know. It will be a time that is not when we expect. Not when we expect. Look down in verse 6. Um, I'm sorry, not verse 6. Let me get this back one more time. Verse 5, when he says, They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world and th- that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So there is going to be a day, but when? Verse 8, don't overlook this fact, Peter says. That with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The way that we relate to time, God is not relating to time that way. So we might say, it has been forever since Jesus was here, and then when he's promised to come back, it hasn't happened yet. It's been forever. It's been like 2,000 years. This is a long time. And Peter's reminding us that God is not uh, even in any remote sense operating in the time frame that you and I operate under, thinking this has been a long time. You see, timing for God is viewed from a different vantage point than when we view it. We might look at our entire lifespan and think that's a long time, but God has a different vantage point, a different objective. And look what he says in verse 9 about his objective. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. That promise is his coming, his return. He's not slow in fulfilling this promise that he's going to come, as some would count it to be slow. But here's what he is. He's patient towards us, not wishing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance. So when? Well, first of all, we know that's not going to be when we're expecting it because God operates on a different timetable than we operate under. He's patient, longing for people to change, longing for people to be different. In fact, in light of this day coming, this becomes the very motivation that Peter uses to wake people up and sober them to change now, to repent now to be different now because this day is coming and the thought of that day coming should motivate us to change. And so he says in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come this way, like a thief in the night. That's the only way he leaves it with us. Basically, when will Christ come? We don't know, but we know why he's waiting. And that should give us not only a sense of longing for him to come, but a patience with him because there are more left to repent. But here's what we know that we will not expect it when he comes, like a thief in the night. So we know, number one, that Christ will come, not at a time when we expect it. What's causing his delay, what's causing his waiting, is a desire for more to repent, for more to come in to align with him. 
And so we know that he will come, but not when we expect it. Number two, when he comes, evil is going to be destroyed. Evil is going to be completely conquered. There is not, like some dualistic thoughts and some worldviews might say, this big sort of good versus evil battle taking place and we're trying to find out who's going to win and we're really crossing our fingers that God is going to beat evil someday and beat the darkness. That's not the case. The victory is already won. We know who's going to win. But in that day that he finally returns, evil will be completely, utterly destroyed, banished from all existence with God's people. Are you longing for that day? Christians, listen to me. The idea of the Christian hope has to become more constant on our lips with our friends. Because right now we have a world that is parched for hope, starving for hope. And yes, it may seem a little bit out there for us to talk about our Christian hope sometimes, but we can't just have words like heaven and someday on our lips. We've actually got to articulate what our Christian hope really is. What is heaven? Heaven is a detached word from people if they don't know what it really means. Heaven is the presence of our Creator who has loved us from all eternity in a place where evil will not be a barrier anymore to Him. We've got to articulate what heaven really is, what the Christian hope really is. We've got to be able to say that. So on that day, when He comes, evil will not be battled against. Evil will be conquered, defeated, banished. He's going to do three things. If you look in verse, um, uh, let's start in verse 7. No, no, I'm sorry. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, or the elements, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be destroyed. So here's the things that God is going to do when evil comes. The first thing is there's going to be judgment. There's going to be judgment. Uh, If you look down in verse 5 as well when he says, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged or plunged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up being kept until this day, the day, the day of the Lord, for two things, the day of judgment and the day of destruction. First of all, on this day, there's going to be judgment. That word judgment is crisis. It's where we get our English word crisis, meaning there's going to be a crisis for some people. Judgment means just to separate, to divide, to conclude. And on that day of judgment, it will either be a day of judgment declaring those a a good day for those declaring those righteous and a day of judgment declaring those unrighteous those that are in christ as ken talked about this morning christ in us and christ covering us those that are in christ in the cleft of the rock that when god comes and the heavens are burnt away by his fire the intense heat of god's presence is going to burn away all the evil We that are hid in the cleft of the rock, like Moses was, who is Jesus Christ, will be preserved. And on that day of judgment, there will be those that are declared unrighteous because they're standing there in their own righteousness. And it won't measure up. 
those that stand on that day by themselves on their own merits will not measure up but those that hide in the cleft of the rock that are in the ark of Jesus Christ that are covered by him will stand there in the presence of God and be declared right and acceptable and saved that day of judgment is coming the second thing we see is that there's going to be a destruction look what's going to be destroyed in verse 7 we said that, that those things are being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Those that are ungodly, those that literally don't mirror God-like qualities, that don't look like God, that have no heart that is molded in the image and shape of God that we were always designed to be like. So that day is going to come when there will be judgment, separation, good and evil, that day will come where, uh, where um, ungodly will be destroyed. And finally, in verse 10, as we said, that will be a day that there will be exposure and dissolving of all of the works of this world. It's kind of an interesting language that Peter uses here. A lot of it is very image-based. It gives us a lot to think about. But on that day, when the heavens, the, those things that separate us from God, the, the canopy, so to speak, is rolled away, it's, it's removed and God is there. He says that his presence will bring to the surface, will expose all of the evil intentions, the evil thoughts, the evil works of the world. And in his presence, those things will be utterly and completely destroyed. And if we build our lives upon those things and hold on to those things and have our identity wrapped into those things, we, along with those works and those evil desires and those evil activities, will be banished from God as well, gone away. And in that day, there will be complete exposure. All things will be known, and that which is evil will be destroyed. And so therefore, number one, Christ will come. Number two, evil will be completely conquered. Therefore, number three, how should we live, Peter says. If this is the case, that in the presence of God, when he calls himself light, that all of our sin will be known and if we're not in Christ we will be judged by that sin if that's the case he says in verse 11 since since these things are thus to be dissolved meaning all of these evil works all of these evil desires all of these sinful ways that we live by since those things are not going to exist for all eternity how should we live and he gives us three things number one we should live with eternal things not temporal things there in verse 11, he says, since these things are thus to be dissolved, the evil works are going to be done away with. What kind of people ought we to be in our lives of holiness and godliness? What he's saying is it's incredibly foolish. It's unwise to live your entire life functioning in the ways of evil and the ways of sin. So you might think that being greedy works right now or being being a liar works right now or being a deceiver works right now or being judgmental and critical works right now or be, whatever sin that you can come up with you might think that that functions for you right now and it works for you right now but what he's saying is how foolish is that to hold so tightly onto sinful lifestyles when you know that at the coming of God and coming of Christ all those things are going to be exposed and then done away with it doesn't make sense to build your life on things that are not going to last for all eternity. You won't have them. And if you hold on to them, you'll be gone with them. He's saying if that's true, if at the coming of Christ those things will be exposed and then dissolved, how should you live then? 
you should probably live towards eternal things, holiness and godliness. Number two, he says that we should live with this judgment day in our minds, sober-minded, aware of it. If you are in Christ, judgment day should not cause you to tremble. If you're here tonight and you are in Jesus Christ, when I say in, I'm saying he is in you, he is covering you, you are like, he is like your ark and you're inside of him, safe from the wrath and the judgment that will come, and you are protected. If you believe that you are saved because of him and you're in him, judgment day should not bring an overwhelming sense of fear to you. In fact, it should bring incitement because it's the day that he'll separate evil from good and we'll be left with that which is good. So we should live with judgment day in mind to keep us in Christ. Number three, he says in verse 12 that we should live with hope of what's to come. Look in verse 12. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies, the elements of the, of the earth, will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. But what's so special about these new heavens and new earth? It's not new sights to see or new tastes to have or new experiences to see. What he says is ultimately what's the basis of this new heaven and new earth is this. It's the place where righteousness dwells, where righteousness dwells. You and I need to live stable, secure, and hope-filled. Not just for the fact that this earth and this moment and this time might eventually be a place without sin, but in, the world that, in light of the world that's coming when Christ returns and we're going to live in a world where righteousness fully dwells. Meaning that when we experience injustice or wrongs or evil in this world, we can be disheartened and frustrated and fight against it, but it does not rock our hope, our stability, our longevity in Jesus Christ. This new world that's coming is a place where righteousness dwells. And you know righteousness, it, it's a biblical word, a very good word, a church word that has sort of um, become detached from how we use it in everyday life because we don't really use the word righteousness outside of our church context. But you know, righteousness is actually the thing that every human being is longing for, whether they know it or not. Whether they would ever call themselves religious or not, every human being wants to be righteous. Because righteous is not just morally superior to others in which we now can look down our nose at people because we're righteous and they're not. Righteous, the best way to understand righteousness is to understand it as a record of performance that makes you accepted. Now, I may have used these analogies before, but I hope that it helps uh, just think if you uh, finish um, your bachelor's degree, your undergraduate, and you want to get into graduate school, to apply to graduate school, those admissions counselors will, or officers will ask you for certain documents. Do you know the documents they want? They, they want to know maybe, maybe a resume, maybe some letters of recommendation, but ultimately they're going to ask you for one document. What is it? Your transcript. And on that transcript, it's going to have a certain set of numbers, you know, divided by another number, usually 4.0. And the higher that number is, the better shot you have of being accepted by that school, right? That transcript is your academic righteousness. It's your record of performance that lets you know if you're accepted or not accepted. 
If you want to move up in a career, get a better job, you've got certain years under your belt, you've done certain things, and you apply for a job that's a step up or maybe out of the company, a better job, that HR department is probably going to ask you for a document, right? What's that document? Your resume. And they're going to look at that resume and they're going to say, what have you done to make you qualified or accepted for this job? That's your record of performance that makes you accepted. And the unrest that lies in every human heart goes all the way back to the righteousness we lost before God. That we know subconsciously that we aren't good enough to be accepted by the all-seeing eye. That we know that we haven't lived up to the standard of perfection. And so we do all kinds of things to numb our unrighteousness. Some of us choose to overwork, and so we can't say no. We overpromise, and we try to do everything to work ourselves, to do enough good things so that we'll be accepted. Others, just out of pride and maybe of their morality, look down on others to put others down so that they feel better about themselves. We always are trying to find ways to solve our unrighteousness because we all want to be righteous. And this world that is to come is going to be a place where righteousness dwells. And the question is, how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, the Bible says this, Paul, that there are none righteous. No, not one. We've got a problem. If there are none righteous, no, not one, and this new heaven and new earth that we all are longing for, a perfect world, says that's where righteousness dwells. How do we get there? That's what Paul would tell us when he says, all these things that I've done in Philippians chapter 3, a Hebrew of Hebrews, according to the law, I'm blameless, I'm a Pharisee, tribe of Benjamin. I've done all kinds of things. But when I learned who Jesus was, my record of performance, I looked at it and thought it was like rubbish. Just so I could gain Jesus Christ. And he says this in verse 9, that what I want is to not have a record of righteousness that's of my own, but that which comes by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, when we trust him, we believe in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and we confess that his life is better than my life, and his life was perfect and not mine, and we repent, not just of the bad we do, but of the good we do to try to impress God and not trust God, when we repent, and then we're baptized into Christ, submitting to him, to become one with him. What we're saying is I trust his righteousness and not mine, and we will finally be there in a place where we'll be able to dwell with God, where righteousness dwells because we have the perfected righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you need that, you can have it. Let's uh, stand and sing. You come forward.